Welcome to the American Shoulder and Elbow Surgeons Podcast. I'm your host, Peter Chalmers, a shoulder and elbow surgeon at the University of Utah in Salt Lake City, and I'm joined today by my co-host, Rachel Frank, a sports and shoulder surgeon at the University of Colorado and Denver. Rachel, how are you? Doing well, Pete. How are you today? I'm doing great. Before we get started, I should mention that the views expressed in this podcast do not necessarily reflect the views of the American Shoulder and Elbow Surgeon Society, the University of Utah, the University of Colorado, or Columbia University. Today, we have the fabulous good fortune to be joined by Dr. William Levine. Many of our listeners will know Dr. Levine, but I'd like to briefly introduce him. Dr. Levine was born and raised in North Dakota. He received his undergraduate degree from Stanford, and then he went to Case Western, where he received his MD, and Tufts, where he was a resident. After fellowships at Columbia and the University of Maryland, he joined the faculty at Columbia, where he's been ever since, serving first as residency director, as fellowship director, and now recently as chair. During his career, he's achieved countless accolades and has published innumerable important papers, culminating most recently in his ASES presidency. Among his greatest achievements is the compassion and enthusiastic mentorship he's provided to thousands of students, myself included. Through this mentorship, he's positively influenced giant swaths of the orthopedic workforce. Dr. Lean, welcome to the podcast. Peter and Rachel, it's an honor and pleasure for me to be here. Thanks so much. But Peter, I do have to correct one thing. I was actually Tell born me. in Winni- I was born in Winnipeg, Manitoba, Canada, and then I crawled across the border when I was three months old to Fargo, where I was raised for the rest of my time through high school. I can't think of a better way to start this podcast than the image of a three-month-old William Levine crawling across a, a barren border between Winnipeg and North Dakota to start his life. Um, there you go. One of the things that I think is, there you go. It's, it's that's awesome, Dr. Levine. You exist in a, a storied lineage at, at Columbia University. Um, it, can you tell us a little bit how it feels for you personally to occupy the same office that was occupied by Dr. Bigliani, and then well, in older times, but relatively recently, by Dr. Neer? Does it change the way you approach your job when you arrive at your office in the morning? Well, I think that's a, it's a great question. And it's one of those things where I think you, you could be overwhelmed um, by thinking about the, the footsteps that you're following and the, the office that you might be uh, taking over. How about Frank Stinchfield, you know, who was kind of called the boss way before Bruce Springsteen was the boss um, and Dr. Stinchfield was the chair at, at Columbia or what was called New York Orthopedic Hospital for 20 years from 1956 to 76. So being the 10th chairman of this storied program that was founded in 1866, is, uh, it's incredible to me to think that that's what I do. And I, I, as I said, I think if you, if you were to, to take a step back and think about that, I'm not sure that I'd be able to really do my job and work and see patients and and do the things I love. Um, So you just kind of put your blinders on and hope that you can one day look back and say, yeah, that was, that was a pretty remarkable opportunity that I was afforded in my, in my uh, personal and professional life. And I hope I did them proud. You know, I think about that all the time. And Dr. Biliani, of course, is my mentor and it's an interesting part of mentorship that I talk about with all of my mentees is that you go through phases. I think we all do, right, Peter? You started as a medical student at, at PNS, and we had a lot of conversations about your career and where you would end up and look at how successful you've become uh, through your, uh, both your, your hard work mostly and then through the support of your mentors. And at some point, you transition from just being mentor mentee to colleagues, and then in, I think the ideal uh, situations actually to friends. And so, you know, what happens now is Dr. Biliani um, will call me out of the blue and say, you know, um, congratulations on this recruit or congratulations on what you're doing with the department because he's on our email list. So he gets all of my emails that I send to the department. And so he's completely vested in my success and in the department's success. And there's no better sign of leadership than that. Somebody who isn't worried about his successor, uh, hopefully carrying on the tradition, maybe elevating the tradition, who knows, uh, but, but certainly someone who bears zero 
jealousy, zero adversarial relationships. And as I think you guys both know, that's not the case for all leaders. There are a lot of leaders that get threatened by the next generation. And as I like to tell the, the young faculty who I've been you know, fortunate enough to recruit at Columbia, if you don't make your division better, the department better, and ultimately surpass your elders, then I may have done a bad job in recruiting you because that's really what we're looking for. We want people to push us all to be better. It's really incredible what you've done at Columbia and what you continue to do. Um, Dr. Levine, what, when we talk about the ASCS, what have been some of your proudest accomplishments in your leadership roles there in particular as president, but throughout you know, all of your roles that you've had within the ASCS? Well, Rachel, it's, um, it's hard to, to think about it in those terms. You know, I think it's a little too early um, uh, as far as my presidency goes, and I'll probably have to have others, uh, you know, comment on what they think has been successful or not. I will say that, you know, I, I served for many years as the ASCS Fellowship Match uh, Chair, and that was a position that um, I was really proud of. Uh, Ken Yamaguchi, who's uh, Peter's uh, fellowship mentor, and I really worked diligently to make that the, what was really re renowned within all of the AAOS as the premier match. We worked collaboratively. We worked collegially. We introduced a system where the New York fellowships and the Philadelphia fellowships would band together and say, this is crazy to make these residents fly back and forth six different times to the four New York programs and the two Philly programs. So we created an interview grid where the residents would only have to come to New York and Philly for like a four day stretch and they could get all their interviews in. Uh, we created a no communication policy so that we eliminated the nonsense that happens uh, after interviews. And that was really Ken Yamaguchi's uh, forethought for doing that. And, and so I think that was, that was a time where um, it was kind of the wild, wild west with fellowship interviews. And so I was really proud of the work that we did in, in getting all of those disparate groups together. Some were private practice, some were academic and saying, listen, let's be let's set a you know, you can't talk about role modeling and mentorship and then demonstrate unprofessional behavior. Um, you know, and that's unfortunately what happens, isn't it? We see that with the residency interview process where. You know, people are uh, told they have to come back for a second look. They're told they have to tell you where you're ranking them, which are just blatant violations of all of the rules. And we just thought, hey, we have an opportunity here with the ASCS fellowship match to, to go way above the standard. And let's let's us be the standard bearers. Let's not ask others. Uh, let's not follow others. So I think that was my first kind of um, significant uh, role that I played with ASCS. I, I had the honor of, of uh, being the chair for the uh, meeting when Evan Flato was president uh, and chairing uh, you know, the, the closed meeting at that time was really something that when I was fairly young in my career and that was a huge honor. Um, and so ASCS to me has just been a, a phenomenal organization. And of course, serving uh, as the 36th president is certainly the culmination of, of the highest honor you can achieve in this organization. Uh, it's certainly been a, a, a challenging year. Um, you know, I said to our, at our State of the Union um, address that I gave to my department earlier this morning that I believe the word unprecedented has been used about 14 billion times uh, since COVID uh, came onto our radar. Uh, but there's probably no better word to use uh, when, if you're really honest about it, right? I mean, think about how the tentacles of this virus have infiltrated basically every, every walk of life, every facet that affects us in our daily lives. So to be president of ASES and have one of my first things that I had to do was cancel the um, specialty day before the academy had even announced they were canceling the meeting. Uh, was obviously very um, uh, troubling to me. I mean, so many people put so much work into it, but it wasn't clear what the AAOS was going to do at that point. And uh, obviously they ultimately did cancel, but having to make that decision was certainly a, a challenge that I, I hadn't anticipated having to, to be put into that position. 
Um, at the same time, the Academy announced the dissolution uh, of all of their relationships, their management service arrangements with the subspecialty societies, uh, which meant that we had to find a new home. Uh, we've been at the Academy's home for uh, our entire existence. And so we're, we finally have found a new home in the Chicago area. Uh, and so that's uh, taken up a significant amount of time. And then I think the, the thing that, that I'm proud of right now is that we were in the midst of this horrific pandemic and we thought, you know what, what can we do to help our fellows around the country? Many of them who had to stop operating, stop seeing patients, uh, conferences were shut down. Basically everything was shut down that we consider kind of holy to our fellowships. And so under the leadership of Ranjan Gupta and Gus Mazaka, the co-chairs uh, of our education committee, and uh, with uh, Joaquin Sanchez-Sotelo, we very quickly put together a 16-week core curriculum for the fellows in ASES. Every Thursday night at 9 p.m., we got a moderator and two or three faculty. And I can tell you that, you know, how proud was I when we basically came up with this idea and about 14 minutes later, we had an entire core, uh, curriculum scheduled. And we, in the beginning, we had as many as 100 people on some of those early um, uh, sessions, uh, not only the current fellows, but those who had just matched uh, into the fellowships for this year um, and, uh, and other residents and fellowship directors. And, and uh, so I, I think that just, again, it showed what the ASCS is all about. Uh, and what our founders would have been really proud of is that, you know what, we put aside whatever, you know, differences we might have. We put aside uh, everything else and said, let's come together and do something that's going to be meaningful for our fellows. And so I was really proud of that. And I think it was you know, certainly well received by the fellows. Dr. Levine, you, uh, it's funny, you, you talk and you bring up memories. And I remember receiving an email from you when I matched for fellowship that all the match emails came like from you, uh, which is, I, I think what you just mentioned about cleaning up the match and what an accomplishment that is and what an, what an important part that is of the beginning of a shoulder surgeon's career. The first thing you do is to say, when, when we match, we have a collegial way of doing it and a fair way of doing it. That's not, not going to put people at odds and not going to um, put, put particularly the applicant in an, un, in a, um, an uncomfortable situation. Now, when I matched, there's a story you told me, and I wanted to I wanted to get on the podcast and confirm. The story, and I, I'm pretty sure you told it to me, was that at the time, when you had first envisioned the match, there was not really a good way to do it. And so that Dr. Cofield's daughter had written, handwritten the computer program that did the match. And that the match, the reason the match took time was because she had to enter in all of the names and all the lists into her program. Is that, is that true? Well, there's two parts to this story. So... The first part of the story is that before we uh, hired Stacy Cofield, so that that part is partly true, and I'll go over the rest of that. But before we hired Stacy Cofield, uh, we had, and I won't name any names, but we had a shoulder surgeon who was an ASCS member run the match, and he basically that person would get all of the lists from the fellowships and all of the lists from the applicants, and then he would kind of do the, what a computer would have done. Remember, there weren't that many fellowships and that many applicants back when we were doing that in the beginning. Uh, but unfortunately, we found out retroactively that he didn't quite understand the algorithm and how it was supposed to work. So we quickly said, okay, this can't continue. And so Dr. Cofield, <laughs> said, <laughs> Dr. Cofield said, you know, my daughter is a... Um, uh, I, I think she was a computer engineer. I forget exactly what her training was, but she was at the University of Alabama in Birmingham. And she, I spoke to her one night. We talked about the algorithm that the NRMP uses and how it's weighted towards the resident. In this case, it would be weighted, or weighted to the student for residency match. And in this case, to the resident for the fellowship match. And so sure enough, Stacy uh, came on board and we employed her and uh, we she was doing our match up, up until we went with the uh, San Francisco match, actually. It's such an incredible story. I mean, I, to me, that's such, it so typifies everything uh, that's great about the society that 
that, that you know, it, it, it was essentially family, you know what I mean, from the beginning. Exactly um, right. Exactly right. Now, I, I want to transition to um, kind of a similar topic, which is that, you know, you've, you've mentored so many students and residents. Um, and um, certainly you mentioned that you'd mentored me and you mentored me through a difficult decision. And I, I think helped me to get out of my own way, which is often so often what a mentor is useful for. Many of our listeners are trainees and young surgeons, um, and and I th- think you've given so much good advice over the years. What advice would you give for those in training earlier in their careers about how best to succeed? Um, you know, Peter, I think that what what we all do is um, we all make mistakes, and the the best advice that I try to give people is try not to reinvent the wheel. It's one of my least favorite things to do. And I think we all do it in one way or the other throughout our training. And what I mean by that is when you're going to be a young surgeon in your first job, don't be proud to the point where you are foolish. Don't uh, forsake the elders that you have in your practice or in your department. Don't schedule horrifically uh, difficult cases Uh, and think you have to do it all on your own because you're now the guy, the man or the woman who's supposed to be doing all of these difficult cases. I will say that the typical academic paradigm historically has been this scenario. New faculty member, bad OR time, poor assistance, poor anesthesia and nursing care, most difficult cases. Now, if you were going to design a system that would destroy somebody's confidence, that might be it. That might be the perfect system. And I've seen it really, really impinge on people's confidence around the country uh, from talking to friends and talking, asking to, you know, people calling for advice and so on and so forth. So uh, I think that has historically been what's happened. And I always use, you know, one of my favorite examples is to use the example of Gus Mazaka and Bob Arciero, two of our incredible ASCS members, uh, Bob, past president of AOSSM, Gus, obviously, former uh, chair at UConn, uh, phenomenal surgeons, confident surgeons, technically gifted surgeons. And you know what they do once a month? They schedule their most difficult cases together. At this point, still all these years later, because they know if they have a skilled set of hands as their assistant, that those very difficult cases are going to be that much easier, that your psychological and emotional and spiritual uh, approach to that case is going to be that much easier and better because you're not going to be worried about that case as much because you know you have that set of hands and that confidant uh, in the operating room. So uh, to me, that, that is such an incredible uh, symbolic uh, example of no pride whatsoever, do what's best for the patients. And I think if you try to carry that into your young practice and understand that you know what you just did as a fellow bears very little resemblance to what you're gonna be doing in practice. The pressure, the intensity, the nerves, the angst, you know, all that stuff is amplified way beyond what anybody can uh, tell you about. And Peter, the last thing I'll give you is it's kind of like before you've had your first child, right? You're about to have your first child and you can have all the people in the world tell you what it's going to be like to be a parent. You can read all the books you want. You can read every, uh, you can listen to every podcast. You can do anything you like. But until you have that kid, you have no idea whatsoever what it's really going to be like. And I think that's very analogous to what happens when we all start our first practice. Yeah, I think that's that's great, great advice. Um, we, I definitely did that at first, and I, I maybe would have done it more because there definitely were cases where halfway through I said, God, I wish I had someone else to look at this to tell me whether or not it looks okay. And I can't tell you how many times also early in practice – I would say, I feel like I've never seen this before. And it made me wonder, have I seen this? Did I see this and just not know it? How have you, how have you facilitated that? 
at Columbia. What um, t- tell us how you can what, what mechanisms, what apparatus can you set up to to make that easier so that every you don't have to think to yourself every time, well, I need to ask for help for this, so that it, it can become more natural for us to do that as part of our routine. So tell me, tell ask the question again, Peter. I want to make sure I understand what what you're asking me. I think you're giving great advice uh, for for the young surgeon to to ask for help. Tell tell us how we can all incorporate that into our regular routines. How do we make it so that we don't have to rethink every single time we see something difficult? Oh, I should ask for help. Like I know how I've done that, but I'm curious to know how you've done that at Columbia. Well, I, I think that what happens is that um, there is a transition that happens for every young surgeon. And I will say that uh, it is impossible, frankly, for me to predict. I can, I can hire somebody out of fellowship and the fellowship director tells me that they're the most confident, um, uh, capable surgeon they've ever seen, that they could do everything from start to finish without you know, supervision and without much help at all, et cetera, et cetera and they can get to their first job at Columbia or anywhere else, and they are not that person that I just described. And something about that first transition is is very hard for them. And I've seen other surgeons, other young surgeons fresh out of fellowship, who the first week into their their practice, they wanna take a fellow through a case, they wanna take a resident through a case, and they have the utmost comfort level in being able to do so. So I think first of all, you have to be, you have to have what I'd like to call situational awareness, which as you both know, is not something everybody has. Uh, In fact, a lot of people have very poor situational awareness. So you have to have EQ and you have to have situational awareness. And that means that you have to be honest enough to say, I know what my strengths are and I know what my weaknesses are. I know what my opportunities are and I know what my challenges are. So you can do your own SWOT analysis and figure that all out. And so if you do that first, then I think you have a head start over a lot of people who don't do that. And those are the people who will get into trouble, frankly. And then the second thing is that I think as if you're somebody who is is very comfortable to ask for help early on, then what you'll find is that as you do it more and more and you get your reps in as the primary surgeon and you get your comfort level, you'll find that the need to be, to have to call the senior partner, you'll you'll stop calling Bob Tajan for every case. You'll call him periodically. You'll stop calling Ken or Lisa or your former mentors. Rachel, you'll stop calling Brian Cole or Tony Romeo. Um, So those mentors are there for you. They're like a, a, a security blanket but you'll find that you don't necessarily need to utilize them as much as you did in the beginning. And you'd rather have that transition be than you know, not use those mentors and not use your senior partners early and then get yourself into trouble, uh, break down your confidence, and then feel like you're almost desperate for help uh, in the second scenario. And that's really what we want you to avoid having to do. It's really great advice and speaking as a surgeon pretty early in my career, I think your pearls and advice resonate quite well in your description of the first one to two years in practice, particularly in an academic practice, I think is uh, pretty spot on. Um, Just speaking to your years of experience, you know, speaking of young surgeons and trainees, and I know you've been pretty active on uh, social media and some podcasts and webinars about this topic, but for our podcast, I think it'd be relevant for our listeners What are your thoughts on residency and fellowship interviews this year, which is obviously a unique year due to the lack of rotations for aspiring residents and certainly due to virtual interviews for aspiring residents and fellows alike? What are are your thoughts on that? Um, And, you know, what advice might you have for our younger listeners who are hoping to get, you know, one of those coveted residency spots or shoulder number fellowship spots or sports medicine fellowship spots? Yeah, Rachel, again, uh, Due to this unprecedented time we're in, we're, we're dealing with things that we never could have foreseen. Um, I'll start with the residency because it became very clear, you know, obviously because we were in New York and we were hit so hard so early, 
uh, it became very obvious to me that we were not going to be having a visiting sub eyes this year. I mean, there was just no question in my mind that that was not going to be happening. And so very early, back in early, early June, uh, I gathered um, my pr uh, program director, Charlie Jobin, who you both know well, uh, our associate program director, Tishan Lynch, who's a phenomenal um, sports medicine uh, hip and knee surgeon, and then our two chief residents, Carl Herndon and Nana Sarpong, and then uh, PG3 resident, Nick Danford, and a PG2 resident, Liana Tedesco. And I said to the six of them, here are my thoughts. We're not going to have visiting sub eyes. And so we need to come up with something that is going to be completely different, completely novel, and is going to achieve the goals of letting medical students on their own time, not on our time, uh, learn about our program. We'll, we'll learn about them, but we're going to do it in a much longer longitudinal pathway than a typical sub-eye experience. My feeling was immediately that the concept of being able to take an in-person sub-eye and convert that to a virtual sub-eye was really impossible. That, that was my hypothesis. I just didn't feel like you could do it. And I know some places are trying and they are doing it and that's fine. And they're certainly not wrong and I'm right. But for me, I just looked at it and I said, I just don't think you can really replicated. And for a lot of reasons, frankly, one of them being that if you try to do a virtual sub-eye, these poor students have to do their home sub-eyes and they can't be pulled thinking they've got to be at a 630 grand rounds at, the, at Utah while they're doing their home sub-eye at the University of Colorado because their home sub-eyes this year are the only surrogate that we have for what their clinical acumen is going to be because they're not going to go anywhere else. So I just, I really felt strongly about that. So I said, that part we can't replicate. So we came up with, with what ultimately evolved was the Columbia Longitudinal Information Program or CLIP. And CLIP basically did what I just uh, outlined. So we took the students were, were applied for and screened just like if they were wanting to come to do a, a, a visiting sub-I or to apply for the residency, frankly. And for those that were accepted, they were assigned a resident buddy and a faculty liaison. So that was number one. And then on the student's time, not on our residence time, not on the faculty time, the students would then coordinate either a Zoom session, a FaceTime uh, chat, uh, a text, email, call, whatever they wanted, and they would start the process of getting to know each other. And that was the first part of it. The second part of it was we then said, okay, let's have twice monthly lectures for the entire group, all of the students, and all of our residents. And those will be given by faculty on the least obtrusive time possible. So I picked Sunday at 9 p.m. I figured there's, you know, that's not gonna interfere with virtually anybody's sub eyes or anything else. And so that was the next part. And then the third part was on those Sunday nights, twice monthly events, we would then have breakout sessions. Um, and so, then the students would get two really important parts of it. Number one, they'd get to see a couple of different residents because we'd have three residents in, the, in each of the breakout rooms with five to six students. And more importantly, or equally importantly, I guess, the students would get to be with other students. And of course, that's what we're, you can't replicate in a virtual sub-eye, right? So if you guys were doing your sub-eyes at Rush or at at uh, HSS or any place, you'd be with five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten other students, some of whom would ultimately be your co-residents or future co-fellows. Uh, and so those breakout rooms really became an important part of it. And so that's, we started that back in June, where um, we have uh, already had six of the sessions, the Sunday night sessions. It's been really successful. Um, and the feedback's been phenomenal. And it's giving that longitudinal uh, uh, kind of touch points. So it's not just like you come for a month and you're all in and you do your sub-eye and then you go to your next sub-eye and you're all in at the next place. And then you don't really see the student again until interview day. So um, that was kind of how it was developed. And, and uh, you know, it's too early to say, but I, I do think that the, the feedback has been fantastic. I've had an opportunity to do one-on-one -on -one Zoom sessions with every one of the students in the program. Uh, so I think that's been great for, for us to be able to 
really get to know the, uh, the students and for them to get to know us. So that's the residency side of things. I think this is the hardest. I mean, it's, it's, it's almost trite to say how horrible this is ultimately for resident, for the students applying in ortho this year. Uh, it's so challenging for them, and I feel their angst on a daily basis. Um, the lack of mentorship around the country is so palpable. Uh, when ortho mentor uh, Tabs Ayer and Matt Vericello and John Kaplan, the three co-founders of Ortho Mentor, contacted me to participate in Ortho Mentor. Again, I, I always say, but I think they just needed somebody with gray hair because they were too young. Uh, but we talked about things we could do. And when the, the um, pandemic hit, we said, let's do some webinars. Um, and uh, we're about to have our sixth web, uh, our sixth, yeah, our sixth webinar next week. But our fourth webinar, we had 5,300 people register and 3,300 people live. We had to like bust out a Zoom and go into YouTube live because, it's a, and, and all that tells you guys is that the dearth of mentorship and the angst about the lack of mentorship out there is just palpable. And so I, I, I credit Tabs Ayer and, and John and Matt for really tapping into something. It's kind of like ortho bullets tapped into the dearth of orthopedic uh, fund of knowledge and view Medi tapped into the whole surgical video world. And I think these guys really tapped into the, the mentorship um, problem that, that we have in, in surgical education. What's well, Incredible. I mean, it's a certainly a different approach this year. It'll be interesting to see how um, how this year's process will influence the process in years to come. You know, I think we'll if we can have sub eyes again and in person uh, rotations and interviews. It'll be interesting to see how the processes that have been invoked this year might um, also stand true or, or work um, at least in a combined uh, effort in years to come. As we bring the conversation a little bit back to your career, you know, you, clearly you've been productive over your career, incredibly productive. You maintain a busy clinical and surgical practice. You complete a high volume of influential research and you serve in so many administrative and educational roles. And really everyone in the orthopedic community and in particular, the sports medicine shoulder community, you know, knows you and respects you. It's, it's incredible. What have been your strategies to keep ahead of all these responsibilities while also maintaining a life outside work and spending time with your family? How do you do that? And what advice do you have for our listeners? Well, um, work-life balance, as you know, is what people talk about, but probably is a, is a um, faulty term because it, it, it presumes that there is a balance in both sides of it. And I don't really think that that's the right way to look at it. Uh, some people have talked about work-life integration. Uh, as a better way to think about it. Um, and you can argue whether that is different or better. Um, I think that the, the reality for me is that um, it, it's hard. There's no, there's no perfect way to do this. Um, you know, I, as you both know, and you know me well enough, I don't sleep. And so that is a very important part of why I've been able to do a lot of the things I, I'm able to do. Um, so I only sleep four hours a night. And, um, and so that does allow me a lot of extra time during the day to get some of the things done that I just can't get done during the, the earlier parts of the day. Um, and so that, that's not an advantage that everybody has, but that's, that certainly has been important to me. Uh, there's a book that I give to all of my residents and fellows and young faculty. Uh, it's by Greg McCown, who's a professor uh, at the business school at Wharton in Philadelphia, and it's called Essentialism. Um, and I can't remember, Peter, if I've ever given it to you. Um, <clears throat> but it's, it's a book that it is absolutely uh, should be on your must-read list. Um, and it really helps anybody, but certainly doctors and surgeons who might be listening to this podcast. It helps kind of crystallize the concept of essentialism and what is essentialism and what, what Professor McCown has shown with his um, research over the years is that you two are great examples of people who have been on the radar for academic success since the second you started your, your careers. People know who you are because you have been incredibly successful 
um, in, in scholarly productivity, which is what brought you to people's attention. And so then that puts you on a, a conveyor belt to upward trajectory of success, correct? So that now you're going to get the best residencies, you're going to get the best fellowships, you're going to hopefully get the best jobs. And so what happens, though, to you is that because you are those people, you then get asked to do more things. You get asked to co-host the ASES podcast. And why do you get asked to do that? Because you guys not only um, have shown success, but you are closers. And closers are like Mariano Rivera, right? You're in the ninth inning. Who do you want out there? You want Mariano. You want Mo. Because you guys get the jobs done. And you don't only just get the jobs done, but you get them done extraordinarily well. So that then begets more asks. So now it's like a Ponzi scheme. Ah, uh, We know that Rachel will get it done. We're going to ask Rachel to do it. We know Peter will get it done. We're going to ask Peter to do it. And that just continues to snowball. And in the first five years of your life, in the first five years of your professional career, it's really important to say yes to almost all of those asks. Those asks might be see one more patient, do one more surgery, take one more call, come to the ER to see this fracture dislocation. Can you help me with this paper? Can you help me with this podcast? Can you help me? Can you, can you, can you, can you? And the the three A's that we always talk about, right, are ability, affability, and availability. But in the first five years, availability trumps all others. Because if you start saying no in the first five years, that can be a huge stumbling block. So what Greg McCown would say is that essentialism is to say in the first five years of your career, regardless of, your, of the profession, you say yes, because that's going to help you get successful. And that's what you guys have done. And that's why you are where you are. Year six through 10 of your career, you need to start saying no. And you start to say no to things that are not essential. And this is where you then start to have to be analytical about what is your mission? What are your goals? Where do you see yourself in five years? And if you can identify and articulate your mission, you can now say, okay, I'm going to throw out the non-essential stuff. Now, what is our fear for you two and for others like you, so many out there listening who are successful? Your fear is that if you say no, it will thwart your upward trajectory. It will thwart your pathway to success. That's your fear. But what the research shows and what reality shows is just the opposite happens. When you start to discard the stuff that's non-essential, you become more good, if you will, at the essential stuff because you're not feeling too diluted. And the stuff that you thought, oh my God, if I say no to, someone else is going to do it. And it's not going to impact you at all. And then, of course, as you get even further into your career, you start saying no to a lot more things because now you can be much more selective and say, you know what, unless it's something that's really either a passion of mine or really important to me, I really don't have to do that anymore because you're established in your career, you're established in your <coughs> profession, and you can uh, you know, let other people do it. The last part that is critical um, is the family um, part. And so how do you, how do you manage that? Well, I had the good fortune of doing an ICL at the Academy every year on lifelong learning and with uh, Jack Flynn, uh, who is one of the, uh, my good friends, who's the chief of pediatric orthopedics at CHOP. And Jack gives a phenomenal talk on uh, work-life integration slash work-life balance. And one of the things I learned from that uh, Jack's talk is that the first thing you do when you're a parent is that you get your kids schedule for the year at least for the first, for the next six months. And you get that schedule. And then you say to your office coordinator, here's Claire's tennis schedule, my 15 year old daughter, when she got to play tennis last fall, but won't get to play this fall because of the pandemic. I said, here's Claire's tennis schedule. Make sure that I am booked out for everything on every one of her events. And here's Claire's basketball schedule and book me out for every single event. 
and here's Jill, my wife's schedule, and make sure that I'm booked out for whatever events that we need to be at together. And it's a surefire way to say to yourself, nothing is more important than those events that you identify as being important. And it may be a recital, it may be a sports event, it may be, it doesn't matter. But what you, you realize, of course, is that you can't do that a week in advance. You can't do that three days in advance when you've got a, a office filled with 45 patients. But you can do anything three months in advance. And so when people complain, oh, I missed my kids this, or I missed my husband's this, or I missed my wife's that, there's nobody to blame other than yourself. You didn't have to be in the office. You didn't have to go to that meeting. You didn't have to do that OR case. You could have scheduled around it. So that that's really probably been the most important thing I think I've learned over the years. And I certainly am not a role model for that. I, I've, I've made plenty of mistakes, but I think I've done my best um, in the last few years to really try to make that part of, of how I've um, tried to honor my family and also uh, do the things I need to do professionally. One of the questions I want to ask you as a follow-up from that, and I think that's such a, I mean, you've given such an incredible block of good advice over the whole podcast, but that in particular, the advice about essentialism, you, you've told me that, and I um, certainly have gotten similar advice from, from Dr. Yamaguchi. One of the things that you mentioned in there is that you need to have a mission. And I, uh, one of the questions I've often wondered is, when is the appropriate time to begin the process of deciding what your mission is. The reason I ask that question is because you obviously, while you're in training, you're beholden to someone else's mission. You're beholden to the, the, to the, the, the mission of the program or you know, the, the, the priorities of your mentors. Um, and then when you're out in practice, all of a sudden you are, as you mentioned, have control over your own schedule. But I often wonder if at the very beginning, you really know what would be the most important thing to you. So. What is your recommendation? Should people do that as a fellow, sit down, write down what their mission is? Should you wait a year or two and practice before you have, before, before you have that conversation with yourself? What, is the, what do you think, the, is, there, is there an optimum time at which someone should say to themselves, now is the time when I'm gonna really decide what I wanna accomplish? Well, I think that it's, it's probably one of the most important things that we can do, and it's probably, one of the things that's done the least in my experience. Um, I, I mentioned Tishan Lynch earlier. I, I always have to give him credit uh, for this. When uh, Tishan was early in his practice and um, uh, he would come for his end of the year evaluation with me, which I sit down with our faculty and talk about the year that's passed and then the year coming forward and what your goals are. Uh, to some extent, what is your mission, um, quote unquote, and Tishan would come in with a three-ring binder, and it would include everything that he had done in the year. It would include what his five-year plan was, uh, and then he holds himself accountable to the things that, that he would like to achieve. And I think you guys both know this and appreciate it, but your listeners know, I, I'm sure as well. You know, if you're a fellow in our fellowship program and you have to present at every weekly research um, meeting for the for their shoulder and elbow service. If you have to present every week, even if you haven't done anything from the last week to this week, you are holding yourself accountable. If you never present, it's much easier to kind of let one week turn into one month, turn into six months, turn into, oh my God, I really didn't do the things I had hoped to do in this year. You guys both resonate with that concept? I, yep. I couldn't agree more that for us having a regular meeting of which you have to stand up and say, this is what I'm doing, that it, it, that, that, pub, that public event is enough often to compel you to do something. Totally. So, so, so if, you, if you both agree with that, then think about, you know, I, said, I sit down with our six interns back in June when they showed up and Illyrio Demerilis comes to us from the University of Michigan and I thought I was like in a time warp because I thought it was Tishon Lynch all over again. He's an intern and he comes in with a three ring binder because he knew we were meeting to talk about his goals and objectives for the year. And he has his five year plan outlined. I, it was, I, I mean, I was like, 
blown away. Um, but the point is that having that kind of five year and five years is our, our good increments for us as physicians, because five years is residency. And then once you're done with fellowship, the first five years of your practice, as we've been talking about, that's really when you're going to become mature uh, in most situations. Yeah, you can find some jobs where you're going to be doing 400 cases in your first two years, but that's not the, that's not the reality for most of us. And most people, it's going to take five years to really to get your, your, your maturation as a, as a surgeon. So the first five years, what, is your, what are your goals? Year six to 10, what are your goals? Do you want to be a residency director? Do you want to be a fellowship director? Do you want to be a team physician? Do you want to have upward trajectory in ASCS? Do you want to have upward trajectory in AOSSM? Do you want to be doing hospital leadership? Do you envision yourself being a dean one day, you know, where, where do you see, do you just want to be a great shoulder and elbow surgeon, have a wonderful family, and that's all you want? There's nothing wrong with that, but you have to be honest with whatever of those pathways you are. You have to be honest about what it is you'd like to achieve because it's not going to happen by chance. It's going to be, ha it's going to happen because you give yourself the opportunities to achieve that pathway and to fulfill your, your mission. And so the problem is that if you don't articulate those goals and objectives and identify your mission, then you can obviously appreciate how easy it is to have mission creep and to start saying yes to things that really do take you off, off the path and then lead you to kind of saying, well, why am I doing this? Because this isn't really what I want. So I think the, for the best advice for all of us is be honest. What do you want? And then set up a pathway by which you put yourself in position to ultimately achieve those goals. Well, we could probably go on for another hour or more talking about this. And I know this, this whole conversation, this whole you know podcast really resonates with Pete and myself. And I'm sure so many of the listeners, both young, mid-career and end career, so many pearls here. We really only have time for one more question just due to the nature of the podcast and the limits that we have. So Dr. Levine, if you could have dinner with any person from history, who would that person be and where in New York City would you eat? <laughs> oh my goodness gracious. We have any, any person in history. Wow. Um, and present parties excluded. It can't be Peter myself. Yeah, well, I'd love to take you guys both to Eleven Madison, but uh, it's closed. Um, <clears throat> um, okay, let me think about this for a second. I can have dinner with anybody in history. Well, I mean, there's a lot of different ways to approach that, um, but I think you know. Because we're talking about the American shoulder and elbow surgeons, um, I would like to sit down with Codman. I would love to have had dinner with Codman. And the reason I say that uh, is that he was such a rebel. He was an outcast. He was, I'm sure you guys know the history of how he was thrown out of the orthopedic society uh, because of his renegade views. But he, he was such a um, uh, savant in a way, right? He was, he was talking about outcomes, you know, at a time where nobody had even heard that word. And he was, he was talking about how we had to follow our patients and understand what we were doing as surgeons uh, only about 100 years before we had registries. And, and, and embarrassingly, we still don't have registries at the majority of medical centers around the world. So just from a pure shoulder and elbow perspective, I think that would be the, the person I would say would be amazing to try to understand how he came up with his ideas and all the, you know, his book is obviously the classic. We give it to our fellows as they graduate every year. Um, and thanks to John Ticker, it's now available again. And, and uh, I hope everybody, if you don't have it, uh, please uh, go through the ASCS website and you can order it. And it's a, a great donation um, to the ASCS Foundation. Um, so I hope that's not too corny, but it's actually somebody that I, I think 
has it had such an impact on what we do, not just in shoulder and elbow surgery, but in medicine. Mm-hmm. And Rachel, the only thing I didn't tell you is where I where I would take Dr. Codman for dinner. Um, and there's so many great options in New York pre-pandemic, uh, but you'd have to we'd have to narrow it down a little bit. To, you know, do we want the best slice of pizza? Do we want the best five course <laughs> meal? Do we want a ten course tasting menu? So too many choices uh, in New York City. A little bit more. We have. Denver's got a pretty good food town though, right? It's decent. It's not a New York, it's not a Chicago, but it's growing for sure. <laughs> well, Dr. Levine, thank, thank you for so much for spending an hour with us. Um, I know that our listeners will find this so valuable and um, I, I can't tell you how much I appreciate all of the pearls you've shared with us. And certainly I will thank you personally for the mentorship you've provided to me over the years. And I, I can't tell you how important it's been been to me. So for all of us, really, thank you. Well, Peter and Rachel, um, thanks so much. On behalf of ASCS, it truly has been an honor uh, for me to be the president this year. Uh, We're looking forward to our annual meeting on October 2nd and 3rd, the first ever virtual meeting. Lisa Gallitz and Charlie Jobin, our co-chairs, have put together a phenomenal uh, uh, domestic and international faculty, uh, both Friday night and Saturday morning. Uh, we've got great uh, relive surgeries and symposia and ICLs. Uh, Louis Villiani, my mentor and friend, will be uh, the near lecturer, and uh, General Stan McChrystal uh, will be the uh, Codman lecturer. I'm really looking forward to a, a great meeting. So thanks so much. Uh, it's been a lot of fun, and I, I'm so proud uh, of both of you and all of the accomplishments that you both had uh, and seeing you guys both uh, kind of rise through the ranks already in your young careers. Uh, There's nothing that makes me prouder. And and it's one of the exciting things about mentorship is even people that you might not necessarily personally mentor, uh, but have opportunities to to interact with in our careers. One of the nicest things about academics is that opportunity. Rachel, you you know, I remember vividly sitting down with you at the academy when you were trying to decide about your job search and and uh, having those opportunities uh, to interact with young people and uh, listen to what their their dreams are and their thoughts are and and uh, uh, see where you guys are now it's uh, it's really gratifying to see how how well you've both done well thank you so much I remember that conversation very vividly myself and you have a way of articulating exactly what I think many of us at least I can say personally I know I'm I'm thinking and Um, It just speaks to your ability to understand what we're going through and to personalize it. And uh, I know Pete and I both really appreciate that. And hopefully all our listeners are looking forward to the annual meeting. I know we are. And at this point, that's really all the time we have for this podcast. We really want to extend our gratitude to our guest, Dr. Levine. We hope that uh, you, Dr. Levine, and your family are staying safe in New York and all of our listeners are staying safe and healthy. For all of our shoulder and elbow listeners out there, please don't forget to subscribe. And for Pete Chalmers, I'm Rachel Frank, and we'll see you next time.